on today's episode of May the Record Reflect. You know, we've all been in situations where you've had a, a, a heated back and forth discussion with someone and you're and nothing you say resonates with them. And at some point, you're either it's either going to blow up or you're going to shut down and realizing at some point that, you know, you're not going to it's not going to end well is a to me, an exercise of emotional intelligence to say there's nothing else that needs to be said. Let me take a step back. You say what you need to say. I'm going to tell you it's so noted and we're going to end this discussion. That's going to actually give you the upper hand in the end rather than continuing to engage back and forth. That was Judge Ruth Rocker McMullen and this is May the Record Reflect. Welcome back. Here we are at episode 35 of the monthly podcast of the National Institute for Trial Advocacy. I'm your host, Marcy Mangan. To open today's conversation, I wanted to share with you a couple of quotes that I found this morning. Here's the first one. I still have a little imposter syndrome. It doesn't go away. That feeling that you shouldn't take me seriously. What do I know? I share that with you because we all have doubts in our abilities about our power and what that power is. And here's the second quote. I have spent my years since Princeton while at law school and in my various professional jobs, not feeling completely a part of the worlds I inhabit. I am always looking over my shoulder, wondering if I measure up. Now, what floors me is not the sentiment, imposter syndrome, but rather the remarkable attorneys who said them. The first one was Michelle Obama. The second, Associate Justice of the Supreme Court of the United States, Sonia Sotomayor. Wow, I guess Us Magazine is right. Stars, they're just like us. Judge Ruth Rocker McMullen can relate. She is a judge in the Gwinnett County Magistrate Court in Georgia, appointed in 2014 as the first Vietnamese judge in the county. She began her career at the DeKalb County Public Defender's Office, where she defended indigent clients charged with a wide variety of serious felonies. Judge McMullen was born in Saigon to a Vietnamese mother and Black father, and her family evacuated the country during the fall of Saigon in 1975. She grew up in Alabama, which is where her father is originally from, and she has experienced a lot in her life, accomplished a lot in her life. And yet she too has spent time, just like Justice Sotomayor, looking over her shoulder, wondering if she measured up. In other words, hello, imposter syndrome. Here's our interview. So today we're going to be talking about a a range of different things that affect people when they work among other people. And so we're going to be talking about imposter syndrome, implicit bias, and the thing that um, happens when those two things meet. And so starting out with imposter syndrome, um, this is a term that was first coined in 1978 by two graduate students named Suzanne Imes and Pauline Plants, and it describes 
their observations that high-achieving women often doubt their own abilities. They feel like a fraud, and they are concerned about being found out and exposed as a fraud. Um, They don't internalize their own accomplishments or um, see them as the end product of their own natural skills and hard work, and rather they attribute their accomplishments to just a lucky break. So my question to you, uh, Judge Ruth McMullen, is, is imposter syndrome a typical human experience? Does everyone experience it? Well, Marcy, I, I can't speak for everyone. I don't know that everyone experiences the phenomenon that is imposter syndrome. I know that I believe I have heard more anecdotal evidence, so to speak, from people of color, particularly women of color in certain fields. Um, it seems to be a common theme, and it's not something that's often talked about amongst our peers, but when we do talk about it, it's almost like a wave of relief uh, when someone acknowledges that they're feeling that way because then you hear a lot of, I feel that way too, or I felt that way too. I'm so glad I'm not the only one. Um, So I know it's very prevalent in some of the professional circles that I involve myself in. So speaking of those professional circles, you have um, experience as a judge as a former public defender, and as a law professor. So what are some of the places and spaces where you see that imposter syndrome crop up in law? Generally, the first place I see imposter syndrome is with law students. Um, They have a big role to fill, and there is often in in the very beginning, especially at orientation in those first few weeks and months of law school, they feel like they don't belong. They feel suddenly inadequate. Um, even if they came from a very supportive family, um, a supportive um, undergraduate where they really thought they were top of their class, top notch, when they get to law school, I think just the aspect of being in in law school and the program is humbling in and of itself, but then it also creates a lot of self-doubt um, about your, their own abilities. And so I know we try to address that early on and acknowledge that you're going to feel this way. It's not valid. Don't, don't, don't let yourself, you know, don't get in your own head about your abilities to be here and your abilities to be successful. And then what about in the, in the workforce? I see it sometimes in the younger attorneys. They, you know, it's a combination of actual lack of experience and then the fear of underperforming. And so sometimes I see the imposter syndrome manifesting itself in overcompensating, you know, um, and, and that's where you tell the attorneys, you know, Let's take this down a notch. Let's let's step back a bit and let's let's be a little less emotional, a little more pragmatic about your approach, um, because I I think they feel like they're they're not going to perform the way everyone expects them to. So then they overdo it, um, a little too zealous, a little too you know over the top from the beginning, and it, it doesn't really work. So it sounds like you're describing growing pains that it mostly hope. It- happens to younger attorneys and law students. Yes. Yes. And I also see it in attorneys, you know, 
later in their career who are pivoting, you know, may want to switch practices or switch careers. And then again, there's the self-doubt. There's the fear of, I don't know what I'm doing. And, you know, we have that conversation. Um, I had to have that conversation with myself when I switched my careers from being a public defender to going into private practice to taking a, a part-time judicial position. You know, I, I, I don't know if I'm qualified to do this. And I had to tell myself, you handle death penalty cases. Of course right. you can do this. Yeah, it's just an opportunity to redefine and evolve your self-image. And sometimes it takes a while for your emotions to catch up with the reality of what you now are. Do you think there's a reason why lawyers may be especially susceptible to imposter syndrome? It's hard to say. You know, I, I don't know that it's unique to lawyers. You know, I would imagine if you address this across a variety of professions, you will get some similar responses. I will say for lawyers, I feel like if we're all honest with ourselves, we're a little type A. Um, <laughs> right. Which may lend itself to hyper criticizing our actions and hyper scrutinizing ourselves. Um, because we're all just a little type A. You have to be a little type A to even want to go to law school. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> and then you get into it. And I mean, law itself is an adversarial field. You're pitted against another person. It's a competition. Yes. And, you know, there's that additional emphasis on perfection um, that comes with the type A people. Yeah in general, which tend to be a lot of people, regardless of whether you're a litigator or a transactional attorney, you are still a little type A if you're really honest with yourself. And if you're, if I'm really honest, I'm, I'm a lot type A. Um, <laughs> you're probably in really good company. And I've embraced it. I, I've embraced it. I've embraced it. I've, I've learned to say that that's not a, it's not a bad thing. Self-acceptance is key, right? Yes. <laughs> So what do you think are some of the outcomes of when you have imposter syndrome and it's just running all crazy in your mind? How does that show up in your work, um, how you feel about yourself, and so on? To me, when imposter syndrome was at its peak for me, I think it led to me not being willing to take risk or to seek out advancements within the office or more difficult cases or jobs. Um, and when you don't do those things, you don't get noticed. And then you aren't the one considered for the next level of promotion, or you're not the one considered for the next position of leadership because you don't step out there and, and take those chances. Um, so I, I think it's almost like holding yourself back because it goes into the, well, what have you done that shows leadership? What have you done that shows you took the initiative? And when you, when you are drowning in imposter syndrome, you're just happy to get by. You're just, okay, let me fly under the radar. Let me just do my work and not cause any trouble and not get noticed for anything. <laughs> but that gets old after a while. It does. Um, what you said reminds me of something that I heard maybe 10 years ago. I think it was like around the same time that Sheryl Sandberg's 
um, leaning in book came out and there was also one called the confidence code and i think it came from one of those books but the op the upshot of it was that um when a man and a woman are both looking at a job opening the woman the man will say oh i've i, I check like six out of 10 of these requirements that they're asking for in this job. So I'm going to apply for it. Meanwhile, a woman is thinking, I check six out of 10 of the objectives and I don't reach 10. So I'm not going to apply for it. And so that's kind of a, a dialing down in a, a way that you marginalize yourself if you get in your own way. Exactly. And that's one of the things um, I constantly talk to young law graduates, young attorneys, and when they're considering making their next career move or even just applying to a job, they say, well, you know, I don't meet all of the qualifications. And so I tell them all the time, there are plenty of people in high positions who are wholly unqualified <laughs> for what they're doing. Yeah. You need to have that same audacity to say, you know what, I'm going to apply to because there are plenty of people who are wholly unqualified for their jobs. Yeah. What is that called? It's um, Dunning-Kruger effect when you fail upwards. <laughs> yes, there are plenty, plenty. If you look at the you know, leaders of some of the top companies, they are wholly unqualified for their jobs, but yet they have them. Because they had the audacity to say, I'm just going to go for it. I'm going to do it. Right. And, you know, the worst anyone is going to say is no. I think we can all hear no and hopefully not fall apart. So I know that as a, um, a both a black woman and um, a woman of Vietnamese heritage and uh, an immigrant to this country, you really do check quite a few of those demographic boxes throughout throughout your life. Yeah. Um I do. And it's, you know, it's, it's interesting. I really, growing up in Alabama, being biracial in a time and era and location where that really wasn't cool. Um, that was not the trend. That was not the cool thing to be. You hear a lot of things and it kind of just rolls off your back and you don't realize how insulting that is or how the implicit biases that just come out of people's mouths. And it didn't dawn on me until I want to say, I mean, I, I don't remember when this um, comedy special came out, but Chris Rock had a, 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 one of his series and one of his shows, he was talking about how ridiculous it was that people said Colin Powell was intelligent and so well-spoken. And he was like, how ridiculous is that? He's an educated man. How is he supposed to sound? And for some reason, that resonated with me. And after that, I started noticing and paying attention. When people, I would tell people, oh, I'm in law school. That's impressive. Really, why? There are thousands of people who go to law school every year. Why is that so impressive? Is it because I'm black? Is it because I'm a woman? Is it because I'm Asian? What's so impressive about that? And, you know, once I started paying attention to people's comments, I realized, wow, this is this is really pervasive. So you did mention implicit bias. So I would like to venture into that um, just a little bit. And first, we'll start out with the definition so that we're all on the same page. Um, 
I found that the definition of implicit bias is when we have attitudes toward people or associate stereotypes with them without our conscious awareness. It happens automatically, unintentionally, but nevertheless, it affects our judgments, behaviors, and decisions. Now, the trial bar, of course, knows a lot about implicit bias because of the impact it has, in particular during jury selection. So I am curious to hear your thoughts on what happens in this intersection of imposter syndrome and implicit bias, because in a sense, it seems like they're maybe the flip side of the coin from one another. I think about that a lot. And perfect example. Um, When I started law school, there was a lot of, um, I would get a lot of comments from classmates and it was chock full of implicit bias, you know, and some of it was a little explicit. I mean, I've actually had a classmate say to me, you're only here because of affirmative action. I mean, that's beyond implicit bias. I mean, to me, that's explicitly. Um, But there were comments that were much more subtle than that, that also, I think, fed into what later became imposter syndrome. Because my thought was, how bold of you to say something like that to me? And then I start thinking, overthinking and thinking to myself, was it something I said that made them think that I'm less than intelligent than they are? Um, Was it something I said in class? Is it my performance that they're gauging? Surely it can't be just on the looks of my race or what they assume my appearance to be. It must be something I did. And then I start questioning, well, what did I do that made them think I'm not worthy and I'm not equal? So they, the implicit bias started feeding the imposter. Feeding into my imposter syndrome because then I started thinking, well, they can't be just that shallow to look at me and see a person of color and think I'm not equivalent. I'm not equally intelligent. Um, So then I started to, I really did start to internalize that. And I really did start to think, well, maybe, maybe I don't belong here. Maybe I'm not as good. Um, You know, I can see uh, in class, everyone's taking notes. You know, I went to law school I started law school in 1997, so computers weren't really a thing. Everyone was taking notes by hand. So I can see everyone's writing. I, I'm, I'm struggling. I'm not understanding what's going on. I, don't, I haven't comprehended enough to write anything. And what are they writing? Maybe I don't get it. Maybe, maybe this isn't for me. Yeah, you were all up in your head. Yes, <laughs> until one day I had a, a moment that I realized it, it, it was an epiphany for me. I, I was really struggling with why don't I understand enough to take notes? Maybe I don't. Maybe, maybe this isn't, maybe I should leave. And I started looking around my class at my classmates who are vigorously writing. And I tried to hone in on, you know, what are they writing? And I noticed that one of them was drawing pictures. <laughs> yeah, not really engaged with what was going on in the classroom at all. So it was my assumption that they understood what was going on and they were actually taking notes when really they're just screwing around and looking busy and and given the appearance that they understood. But in actuality, they probably didn't understand any more than I did. Well, that's a good example of how you have to kind of discern the difference between 
whether you're laboring under someone else's implicit bias or you're up in your own head with imposter syndrome. Right, right, right. And, and so that's when I really took a deep breath and said, okay, you know what? We're all lost. And they're just better at playing the game of not looking lost. And so I just need to up my game and look like I know what I'm, what, what's being discussed. So let me, let me perfect my game face. Let me start, act, you know, writing notes too. But th- that, was a, that was a real turning point for me. So there's an interesting article that my husband recently shared with me that has to do with these, these two concepts of imposter syndrome and implicit bias that I want to share with um, our listeners. Um, I just haven't been able to stop thinking about it. Uh, my husband works in software development. He manages uh, a handful of teams. And technology, of course, is known for its programmer culture. Um, and it can be very challenging for women to break into and feel very comfortable uh, working in. And so this article is all about doing glue work. Um, and glue work is what happens kind of at the corner of implicit bias and imposter syndrome. And so I'm just going to describe what glue work is for listeners, and then we'll have a little chat about that. Um, the article talks about this woman who's a new hire in coding, and she's got an engineering degree, and she's young in her career. So she's got a little bit of experience, but she's still pretty unsure of herself. So right there, that sounds like imposter syndrome. And as she's working um, at her job for a few months, she has this breakthrough um, helping resolve some problems that a client was having, but it wasn't related to coding or engineering. It was non-technical, but still she got all these accolades and everyone thought she was amazing at problem solving and pushed things through in a way that they needed to be. And um, so she kind of sees that as an opportunity to, you know, take the temperature of every room that she went into, you know, she was um, problem solving where there were stumbling blocks that the team wasn't um, able to to clear. She started helping with onboarding new employees. Um, She could tell when people were going in different directions and bring them into the right direction together, taking notes and creating documents, you know, all this kind of stuff. That's called glue work. And women are kind of socialized as nurturers and caretakers anyway. And so she was getting all of these great reviews for her performance and peers loved what, loved what she was doing. She felt validated and valuable, which helped her overcome her imposter syndrome. But then at promotion time, she got passed over and she was like, are you kidding me? Look at the impact that I've been having here. And she was being judged on what code she was writing. She was an engineer. She needed to be writing code. She needed to be making these technical engineering contributions, things that are very easily quantified. And onboarding employees and overseeing meetings and problem solving of a non-technical nature didn't cut it. That was not promotable accomplishment. And so she got passed over. So that's called the glue. You're the glue of the team. You keep things running. And so since she wasn't doing this quantifiable technical work, the conversation then came up, well, you know, maybe you're not an engineer. Maybe you should consider leaving engineering and going into project management. And that's a terrible feeling. So 
I think it's really interesting. And like I said, I've thought about this a lot. And I am wondering if you have seen any sort of translation similar to that glue work in your experience in law. And if so, what that looks like. Yeah, I spent my litigation career working in, as a public defender, working in county government. Um, So I can't say that this is the same across all areas of law. I know big law and law firms have their own culture. um, But I will say that when it's time for promotions, they do look at your leadership ability, but additionally, how many trials you've had. And so, yes, um, but no one tells you that when you begin. And so you can practice law for years and not actually keep any type of statistics on how many kinds of trials and what types of trials and what the verdicts were. Um, And so that is something that I will say when it comes down to it, can you argue I've tried more cases than this person that you're promoting over me. And if you haven't kept that data personally for yourself, you don't know. Um, And that is something I do advise a lot of young attorneys is keep your own metrics, keep your own data and your own statistics, log everything for yourself so that you can have your own analytics to provide. One thing that was also mentioned in this article um, is that implicit bias can come into play here. Um, it, the article quoted from a study that said that where there is non-promotable work to be done, women tend to volunteer to do it on a team 48% more often than men do. And so you've got to be kind of careful with that too, because in a mixed gender team, the men will volunteer less because they intuit that a woman is going to volunteer. I would be interested to see uh, from that study how many of these women were actually volunteered versus were voluntold. You know, because it it may have been presented to, to them in a situation where there's no real choice, there's nobody else to do it. You're the last one in the office today and, hey, this needs to get done. You know, is that really volunteering? So when you're facing what you think is implicit bias that's coming at you from an authority figure, such as your supervising attorney or maybe a judge in the courtroom, how do you manage that? Um, I guess it's called managing upwards. How do you manage that situation? I will ask them, what makes you say that? Why would you say something like that? Where does that assumption come from? And make Mm. them explain. So just be direct. Um, I've had it happen. I've had, you know, someone say, well, you know, I know you just came back from maternity leave. So I don't know that you're up for handling these kind of um, cases. And I I just said, well, what makes you say that? Give me an example. Yes. Give me an example. What, What about my work makes you believe that I can't handle it? Tell me, please. I'm listening. Um, what about managing sideways where it's your peer? Do you do the same thing? Do you just call them out and say, why would you say that? You know, I think with peers, it's always been a little easier because they're not so directly related to my ability to maintain employment. So, (laughs) you know, it's easier just to say, that's messed up. Why would you say that to me? You know, I can add some context to it and I can add my feeling, you know, for managing up. It's more 
you can tell I'm offended by the tone of my voice and the look on my face, but I'm not going to say that was some dumb stuff to say to me. I'm just going to say, why would you say that? Or I don't understand. Why would you say that? But with a peer, I feel more comfortable saying, you know, that was dumb. Why would you say that to me? That was uncalled for. And I can actually add my feeling to it so they know in, un, 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 in no uncertain terms that what they just said to me was offensive. Do you think there's ever a time when calling somebody out on their bias, however politely you might do it, um, actually, it's better just to let it go? You know, I, I've, I've probably let so much go that there's a lot of implicit bias that goes right past me now. I don't even recognize it as implicit bias. I mean, growing up in Alabama, I've heard and seen a lot. So at this at this point in my life and my career, if it's something that's so blatant to catch my attention, I'm going to say something because a lot of little things don't even spark my, they don't even catch my ear anymore. Um, so it has to be something significant to me for me to even notice it anymore. Okay. Can you think of any upside to experiencing imposter syndrome? Is there anything good that comes out of it for you that's a benefit? I think there is. I think once you, if you recognize that you are experiencing imposter syndrome and you talk about it and, and deal with it, when you get through that, you have a new baseline of self-confidence that is higher than it was when you started. Um, you now go into every situation a little more confident and a little more um, in control of your own anxiety because you've already kind of addressed some of the underlying issues. So it, it, it helps. And, and I think it also helps when you've worked through it that you can now be a sounding board for someone else that may be experiencing it and you can share your experiences with them um, and help them work through their own feelings of imposter syndrome. Yeah, kind of mentor them through it. Uh, it's, that's related to something that I read, which is that people with imposter syndrome are often so outwardly focused um, in terms of needing to get that feedback to kind of validate them, that they pay really close attention to other people's social cues and they're taking the temperature a lot. And so they naturally have really good social skills that are pretty finely tuned and it makes them more likable teammates to work with. I, that's interesting. I, I could see that. I could see that. But I could also see them being closet introverts. Because it's so much, it, it's it's so physically draining to to be engaged at that level all the time that any chance they get, they're going to retreat and just be by themselves and be quiet. <laughs> Do you have any suggestions about how we can manage our own brains around imposter syndrome? From personal experience, I know that what helped me was allowing myself to be satisfied with my accomplishments, not impressed because there's nothing about, there's nothing about what I've done that 
is outwardly, you know, should be impressive to anyone. You know, my parents aren't impressed. Of course, I went to law school. They, you know, I was a straight A student. I, I, I had scholarships. I was a straight A student in college. Of course, I went to law school. Of course, you became a lawyer. None of that's impressive. So I don't say, uh, you know, be impressed with your accomplishments. I say be satisfied. Be satisfied that where you are and what you've done is what you were designed to do. Yeah, it sounds like you met the expectations that were that came from your family and from yourself. And you use those as a way to kind of have your own back. And it's and it's okay to tell yourself, you know, you know, I, I did that. I did that. No one else did that. I did that. And it's okay to say that to yourself and say, you know, I feel good. I did that. And maybe the flip side of that is don't argue with compliments when other people give them to you. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, and don't meet a compliment with self-deprecation. You know, it's not necessary. Um, people won't think of you less if you just say, why, thank you. <laughs> That's all you have to say. Just say thank you. Yeah. Yes. And I, I would encourage everyone um, to explore the topics of emotional intelligence and how it applies to everyday interactions, how you can use your understanding of your own emotional intelligence to govern yourself, um, and how to to conduct yourself with others. Um, there are times, you know, being prepared and having the answers may not be enough. This may be a power battle that you're not even aware you're going into. So there's no answer that's going to be satisfactory. And if you can assess the emotional intelligence that's being thrown around the room or the lack thereof, and you can quickly determine, you know what? I am not going to win this discussion. There is nothing I can say that's going to be acceptable. Then you can end the conversation without going down some rabbit hole that leaves you frustrated and feeling like you failed at your mission. You can just say, you know what, I'm, I've been in court where I've realized there's nothing I'm going to say that's going to make this judge happy. Uh, I, I'm not going to win. So let me stop arguing. Let me stop trying to provide an answer and just, yes, Your Honor. And when you shut it down, it stops. What do you mean exactly by emotional intelligence and how do you develop that, um, that kind of muscle? Well. You know, I think emotional intelligence is just understanding how your personal emotions affect your your day, your behavior, your conversations. Um, you know, we've all been in situations where you've had a, a, a heated back and forth discussion with someone and, you're, and nothing you say resonates with them. And at some point, you're either it's either going to blow up or you're going to shut down and realizing at some point that you know you're not gonna it's not going to end well is a to me an exercise of emotional intelligence to say there's nothing else that needs to be said let me st take a step back you say what you need to say i'm going to tell you it's so noted and we're going to end this discussion that's going to actually give you the upper hand in the end, rather than continuing to engage back and forth. 
having kind of the self-awareness to know and be able to stop yourself. Yes. And, 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 you know, a perfect example to me, non-lawyer related, is I remember when my daughter was two, arguing with her about her getting in the bath. And at one point I stopped and said, you are arguing with the person who still wears a diaper. <laughs> she has already won because she has gotten you to engage with her back and forth for five <laughs> minutes and she still wears a diaper. You've lost. That's so funny. You've lost. And so I started thinking about it. I said, you know, that she beat me. The fact that we're even arguing means that she won because she engaged. She got me to come to her level. I'm arguing with a two-year-old instead of just picking her up and putting her in the tub. You know, it was like, why did I do that? It's a real eye-opener. <laughs> but there's a... There's a lot of arguments and there's a lot of back and forth that we engage in in our professional life that if you pull back or you reflect back later, you're like, why did I even go there? Why did I let them take me there? Why didn't I just shut this down sooner? And did they get the best of me? And did they win? Even though I felt like I won the argument, did they win the battle or did they win the war because they got me to argue with them? I like the question, did they get the best of me? That's, <laughs> right. That's and so that, that's where just even if you're reflecting on prior discussions, it, it gives you some insight into how you think and what triggers you to make you respond so that you can you know, be a better professional and say, you know what, I'm not going to respond right now. Or as a judge, I'm not going to, I'm not going to rule right now. I'm going to take it under advisement and I'm going to step away from this for a few days. It's okay to say that. And that's one of the things I've learned. I learned as a judge was it's okay to say, I'm not making a decision right now. To take the time that you need. Yes. And just to step away, to step away, to clear my mind, to, you know, maybe it was a really heated exchange. I'm going to step away from that. I'm going to take a breather. I'm going to think about some other things and sleep on it. Well, this has been a really interesting talk about implicit bias and glue work and imposter syndrome. And I think you've given us um a great deal of benefit from your experience. So thank you very much for that. My signature sign-off question, as always, is kind of a fun one. So we'll wrap up the episode with that. So if you could tell me, Judge McMullen, if you could be part of any trial, whether present day or in the past, what trial would you choose and why? And because you are a judge, you can answer that from either the perspective of a trial attorney or a judge. From the perspective of a trial attorney, hands down, I would want to be part of Johnny Cochran's team in the O.J. Simpson case. My undergraduate degree was in psychology and um, criminal justice with a uh, concentration in forensic investigations. And that case was a, a lawyer who likes forensic stuff. That, that's like a dream come true. I would want to be in, in every piece of every piece of evidence. I would want to be involved in that. Yeah, I wouldn't want to be um, in Judge Ito's position, though. 
that seemed pretty miserable. <laughs> he seemed miserable, didn't he? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. And that's a wrap on this episode. With next month's episode, not only will 2022 be down the hatch, but so will the third season of the podcast. And when I thought about that this morning, I was like, wow, three years? Where on earth did the time go? But then I remembered that two of those three years were sent in my COVID bunker. And I was like, no, really, where did they go? Anyway, I'm on a bit of a high because the NETA Women in Trial program just wrapped up last week. A big shout out to Perkins Coie, who hosted it in their gorgeous waterfront office in downtown Seattle, and to our board member, Harry Schneider, for making it happen. We are truly grateful. But at the program, I met so many dynamic, intelligent, compassionate faculty members, truly extraordinary trainers, extraordinary successful advocates. And by my count, I've got eight of these ladies so far joining me on May the Record Reflect in 2023. I'm very excited about what lies ahead. So please keep on listening, whether it's on our website or through your favorite podcast platform. And if you like what you have heard, and it's had an impact on you and your practice, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or email us directly at customerservice at nita.org. I will see you in next month's episode. May the Record Reflect is a NITA Studio 71 production. NITA, we are advocacy enhanced, mentorship reimagined. Welcome to the community.